continue our journey through the Bible from the book of Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. We're cruising through these 66 books, one book each Sunday. And this morning we are ready to study the 17th book, the book of Esther. So let's just dive right in, beginning with the structure. How does the book of Esther fit into the structure of the Old Testament. Well, as we've noted throughout this Route 66 series, the Old Testament consists of three major sections of books, the 17 historical books, the five poetical books, and the 17 prophetical books. There are 39 Old Testament books in total. Chronologically, however, only 11 of these books actually move the storyline forward in Old Testament time. The rest of the Old Testament books, including five of the historical books and all of the poetical and prophetical books, fit in to the storyline of these 11 books. And Esther is not one of those 11 books. Chronologically, it fits in between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. Between the first return of the exiles to Jerusalem, led by Zerubbabel, and the second return, led by Ezra. The approximate dates would be the ten years between 483 and 473 B.C. So what's the structure of the book of Esther itself? Well, as we discovered in the video at the beginning of today's lesson, Esther provides the only biblical account of the vast majority of the Jews who choose to remain in Persia rather than return to Jerusalem and Judah following the exile. God's hand of providence and protection on behalf of his people is evident throughout the book of Esther, even though his name never once appears in the book. Now, as you heard, the author of Esther is anonymous. The evident knowledge of Persian etiquette and customs, the palace in Susa, the details of the events in the reign of Xerxes indicate that the author lived in Persia during this time period. And the obvious Jewish nationalism and familiarity with Jewish customs further suggests that the author was probably Jewish. In any case, the author was certainly an eyewitness to the people, places, and events that are recorded here in Esther. Now with that overall structure in mind then, let's move on to the story. Once again, we're indebted deeply to the Bible Project for their excellent overview of the storyline of Esther in the video clip we watched to begin today's lesson. And as usual, I have reproduced the Esther chart across the inside pages of your lesson notes for your own further study later at home. Now this video clip and this chart tell the storyline of the book very thoroughly. So I'm not going to take the time here to go back through a bunch of details. But basically, I would just say the story of Esther is summed up in knowing the people and the plot of the book. So let's start with the people of the book. There are four main characters, beginning with Esther herself. She is the heroine. Her Persian name, Esther, E-S-T-E-R, no H in it in the Persian, means star. Her given Hebrew name, Hadassah, chapter 2, verse 7, the Jewish maiden who was chosen to be queen once Vashti was deposed. 
The second character would be Xerxes. He's the king, known as Ahasuerus in Hebrew. He reigned for 22 years over the vast Persian Empire. Esther 1 and verse 1 tells us over 127 provinces stretching all the way from India to Cush. Cush is in northern Africa. It's a vast kingdom. Then there's Haman. He's the villain of the story who plotted to destroy the Jews but whose own vanity and pride led to his downfall and death. And then finally there's Mordecai, the other hero. Esther's uncle, by the way, and her legal guardian whose faithfulness to God and the Jews ultimately leads to his honor. In fact, the very last verse of the book, Esther 10 and verse 3, tells us Mordecai was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And that's the way the book ends. So we have Esther, Xerxes, Haman, and Mordecai, the people of the book, which brings us to the other part, which is the plot of the book. Now really, the plot of this story only has two movements to it. First, there's the threat to the Jews in the first four chapters. After Esther Esther becomes queen, Haman conceives this plot motivated by his envy and vengeful spirit toward Mordecai, and through bribery and lies, he convinces Xerxes to issue a decree that all the Jews in Persia are going to be slaughtered on a single day, 11 months in the future. Now, needless to say, that decree causes panic throughout the empire, especially among the Jews. And Esther, in the risk of her own life, decides to try to intercede on behalf of her fellow Jews with Xerxes. The other movement of the book we could call the triumph of the Jews. There in chapters 5 through 10, after three days of fasting by Esther, Mordecai, and all the Jews, Esther does make her request of Xerxes, and to make a long story short, a new decree is issued that allows the Jews to defend themselves from their impending slaughter. Haman then is impaled uh, on that pole that he had intended for Mordecai, and all of the exiled Jews throughout Persia triumph. Now to commemorate the Feast of Purim, is established as a Jewish holiday. A holiday that's, by the way, still celebrated annually on the 14th and 15th day of Adar. On our calendar, the next celebration would be March 9th and 10th, 2020. So it's the people and the plot of the book. A wonderful story of God's providence and protection of his people. That's the story of Esther. Which brings us to the Savior. Each Sunday, as we focus on one of these 66 books of the Bible, one of our priorities is to point out where and how Jesus is to be found in the narrative of that book. Now, please remember, there's one grand central theme, a single scarlet thread, if you will, that winds its way all the way through Scripture, and that is salvation through God's Son, Jesus Christ. That's the story of this entire book called the Bible. And so here in Esther, we want to stop, look, and listen for the Savior. Where and how does Jesus Christ appear in the narrative of Esther? Well, earlier, I had you turn in your Bibles to Esther chapter 4. This key chapter takes place immediately following Haman's treachery in getting King Xerxes to issue a decree that would allow for the slaughter of all the Jews in Persia. Now, so follow along as I read this key chapter. Esther chapter 4, we're going to pick it up with verse 1. 
When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they may be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king." When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish, and who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Now perhaps the key verse in all of this is Esther 4 and verse 14. Mordecai's question to Queen Esther. Let's read it out loud together. Would you read it with me? And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Simply put, Esther, like Jesus Christ, put herself in the place of death for her people. Here's yet another satanic threat to destroy the Jewish people and thus the messianic line. But even this was no surprise to God. When it seemed to the Jews that they were doomed and that their future was hopeless, God was still in control. And for such a time as this, Esther was queen. In the perfect place, at the perfect time, time to act as the Savior and Deliverer of her people. Reminds me of what Paul wrote in Galatians 4 verses 4 and 5. But when the right time came, the time God decided on, He sent His Son to buy freedom for us who were slaves. Don't miss those words. The right time. The time God decided on. 
From before the foundation of the world, from eternity past, God has had His plan, and He's been working His plan in His perfect timing. And Esther was an important piece in this plan. By God's providence, she was in the perfect place at the perfect time for such a time as this. She was used by God to further His plan so that in the future, when the right time came, the time God decided on, He sent His Son to buy freedom for us. The Savior, Jesus Christ. Which brings us to our final main point today, and that's the sense. As we wrap up every lesson, I want to offer the sense of each of these books of the Bible. In other words, what practical take-home lessons can we apply to our lives from this book? In today's case, what instructions, what applications can we glean from the book of Esther? Now, I want to make a statement here. And then I want to take apart that statement and analyze it phrase by phrase in light of Esther's story. Here's the statement. God can use obscure me in my present circumstance if I will risk stepping out in faith. Fill in the blanks there in your notes if you haven't done that already. God can use obscure me in my present circumstance if I will risk stepping out in faith. I believe that's the sense of Esther for our personal application today. So let's take this apart, phrase by phrase, in light of Esther's story. Number one, God can use obscure me. As we've discovered throughout this Route 66 series, sometimes God uses rather powerful people and extravagant miracles in order to carry out His plan and purpose. I mean, we could review a bunch of stories we've already talked about, like Noah and the Ark. That was pretty remarkable. Moses leading the Israelites and crossing the Red Sea on dry ground while all of the Egyptian army is drowned in the water. Or how about Elijah on Mount Carmel? And the 450 prophets of Baal and God sends fire from heaven to consume not just the sacrifice but the rocks and the dirt and even the water around that sacrifice. That's pretty amazing. But God is not limited to that approach in order to carry out His plan and purpose. In fact, He can just as easily use one obscure person and arrange the circumstances around Him and her to allow them to become agents of His mission. As with Esther, sometimes God's plan and purpose is worked out very quietly in the background and only witnessed by a limited number of people. God's creativity in working out His plan and purpose is as boundless as His creative ability in speaking the universe into existence. I mean, notice, for example, His remarkable ability to create diversity among us. Of the billions of people inhabiting planet Earth today, only a very tiny percentage of them look alike. God's ability to uniquely arrange the size, shape, and color of a set of eyes or a nose or a mouth or hair is really nothing short of amazing. (laughs) Not to mention, I found out this last week that God has created over 120 
thousand different species of flies. Did you know that? 120,000 species of flies. I think all of them have been in my house in the last month. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking to myself, why do we even need one species of flies? But God's incomprehensible and infinite creativity allow Him to do so many things that we are literally incapable of even imagining. And one of those things that's difficult to imagine is how He could take an exiled Jewish orphan, a female orphan, no less, who would not be valued at all in that pagan society, who certainly had no royalty, training, or heritage, and make her the queen of the largest empire in the world. All for such a time as this. All in His perfect timing for His divine plan and purpose. All of which leads me back to this first phrase in today's statement. God can use obscure me. Yes, God can use obscure you. God can use obscure anybody (laughs) to carry out His mission on this earth for such a time as this. And whatever else the book of Esther may teach us, certainly it reminds us that God uses the likes of us as obscure as we may be, to accomplish important works in the grand tapestry of history that He Himself is weaving. And I have been born, you have been born for such a time as this. We must, we simply must believe that to be true. God can use obscure me. Number two, in my present circumstance. Following Jesus really has nothing to do with politics. It's apolitical. That is to say, being a Christ follower can be done, for example, in the context of a monarchy, or an autocracy, or a democracy, or an anarchy, (laughs) or any other form or lack thereof of government. I mean, during Jesus' time, for example, Israel was controlled by the autocracy of the Roman Empire. In fact, as we've discovered in the Route 66 series over Israel's history, multiple pagan governments from various peoples, including Egyptians and Babylonians and Persians and Greeks and Romans, reigned over God's people. And though God's original design was for Israel to remain a theocracy with Him as the king... In His grace and patience, He allowed it to become a monarchy, knowing that this would lead eventually to a divided kingdom and ultimately to exile. Nevertheless, the Bible provides examples of multiple men and women of God who flourished within these various forms of government, including even those governments that were hostile to the Jews. For instance, Joseph ruled under the Egyptians. Remember? Daniel ruled under the Babylonians and the Persians. We'll see that when we come to his book in just a few weeks. Esther, right here in our text, ruled under the Medes and Persians. And the exemplary character of Joseph, Daniel, and Esther helped them to win favor with their pagan rulers and enabled them to accomplish God's plan and purpose in spite of their unfavorable circumstances. 
All of which leads me back to this second phrase in today's statement. God can use to obscure me in my present circumstance. Yes, even right where I am right now. The point is that God, serving God and fulfilling the role to which He calls us is possible even in an environment where almost everyone and everything around us is non-Christian, even pagan. I mean, let's be real here. For some of you, that could be your family. Come on. For some of you, it could be your neighborhood. For some of you, it could be the place where you work. You're thinking, what am I doing here? I'm the only Christian in this place. Why, God? Certainly, the world and circumstances around us today are anything but favorable to God's plan and purpose. And yet, throughout the Bible... God enabled His people to function right within whatever circumstance they found themselves. Paul notes this in in 1 Corinthians 7, verses 20 and 21. Let's read this out loud together. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. That's interesting. Paul is simply reminding us that God can use us just as He used Esther, wherever and in whatever state we find ourselves, slave or free, regardless of the external circumstances in which we find ourselves. So let me ask you, what environment do you find yourself in today? Kind of hostile? Maybe a little indifferent? It's certainly tough to be in that situation where you live, where you work, where you go to school. May we bloom where we are planted. Following Esther's example of submission to authority and thus honoring the God of our circumstances. May we learn to be content and obedient to where He has placed us in our lives, knowing that He loves us and He has our best interests at heart and we are not where we are by accident. God can use obscure me in my present circumstance. Number three, if I will risk... Stepping out in faith. Now Hebrews 11 and verse 1 defines faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Biblical faith involves hoping for or being convicted about the certain reality of particular future events. For example, we as believers have a hope and a conviction that Jesus will in fact prepare a place for us in heaven based upon His many promises to do so, including John 14 and verse 2. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? We believe that. Faith is living life with a certain reality that this and, and other biblical truths are indeed true. Soren Kierkegaard once said, there can be no faith without risk. Faith always involves taking risks to some degree, small or great. 
Since we cannot yet see that which we hope for, we cannot physically prove that it's indeed true, thus it's possible that we maybe are mistaken. At a minimum, we're risking the possibility that we're wrong about what's true and real. We can also risk our reputation appearing rather foolish to this world around us. But faith for many believers down through the centuries has involved an even greater risk than that, and that's the risk of well-being. The risk of even life itself. Being required to risk our lives for our faith, which has been the price that martyrs have been and are still in our world today making every day. That was exactly the gamble that Esther had to take. Though she was queen, Esther had a number of factors working against her. Her ethnicity as a Jew was that of the very group of people that her king had just agreed to completely exterminate from his kingdom. You see, she had carefully hidden her ethnicity from him up until she made this appeal that we read about in the text. Then it was common knowledge that uninvited visits to the king were punishable by death. I mean, no one barges in on the king unless the king chooses to extend his scepter to that subject and thereby grant him or her favor. Believe me, Esther was well aware of the dethroned Vashti's fate and what Xerxes had already done to the former queen. And then the Bible tells us that Xerxes had not called Queen Esther to be with him in over 30 days. Now, that implies that he was spending his evenings and his nights with the women from his harem, choosing them over his queen. And thus Esther had real reason to believe she was not currently in the king's favor. And yet, for such a time as this, Esther risked her very life and stepped out in faith for the sake of her Jewish people. And God gave her not only what she asked for, but even more by eliminating all of the Jews' enemies throughout the kingdom. Great faith results in great reward, but not without great risk. Now perhaps the most famous tightrope walker of all time was a guy named Charles Blondine. That was his American touring name. He toured the entire U.S., putting on remarkable exhibitions. In June of 1859, he went to Niagara Falls to put on a three-day show. Blondine stretched the tightrope 1,100 feet across the falls, and on the first day, he walked that rope back and forth, drawing a tremendous crowd of thousands of people. On the second day, He said he was going to walk the tightrope again, only this time he would do so pushing a wheelbarrow full of rocks. (laughs) Now before he tried the feat, he shouted to the crowd, How many of you believe that I can do this? And everyone shouted back, We believe that you can do it. There wasn't a person in the crowd who doubted Blondine. Their cheers thundered nearly as loud as the falls itself as he climbed up on the rope with that wheelbarrow. And once again he shouted, Do you really have faith that I can do this? And again the, the response was loud and clear, We believe you can do it. And he did. He went back and forth several times on that tightrope across the falls. On the third day, 
Blondine dumped the rocks out of the wheelbarrow. And he asked once again, how many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the falls? And again, everyone shouted, we believe you can do it. We've seen you do it. We know you can do it. And so Blondine asked, so then who will get in the wheelbarrow? How many people do you think volunteered? One. Blondine's own eight-year-old daughter. Daddy, I believe you can do this. Which reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark 10 and verse 16. I assure you, anyone who doesn't have a child's kind of faith will never get into the kingdom of God. All of which leads me back to the third phrase in today's statement. God can use obscure me in my present circumstance if I will risk stepping out in faith. See, the question today is, am I willing to get in the wheelbarrow? Am I willing to risk it all, putting my very life on the line for God? Just as Esther did. So I believe this is the sense of the book of Esther for our personal application today. It can be summed up in this one statement. In fact, I'd like to close by having us read this entire statement out loud together. Would you do that with me? God can use obscure me in my present circumstance if I will risk stepping out in faith. Route 66. As we're cruising through these 66 books of the Bible today, we focused here on the book of Esther, the structure of the story, the Savior in the sense. We'll continue our journey next Sunday with the book of Job. Oh, what an interesting book. 42 chapters in this unique book of the Bible. So you got your reading cut out for you. If you read six chapters a day over the next week, you'll read through the entire book of Job by the time that we get together next Sunday. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. It is just as alive and relevant to us today as it was in the day it was written. Thank You for that. And I thank You for the book of Esther, unique as it is, telling the story of this obscure, unknown Jewish orphan who put it all on the line to save her own people. Thank you, God, for that. Because it speaks to us today. And it reminds us that, God, you can use me. You can use each and every one of us, as obscure as we may be, right in the middle of our present circumstance, even though we may be griping and complaining about that circumstance, you have us right where you want us for such a time as this. We just need to get in the wheelbarrow. Help us to risk so that we can be the people of faith that you have called us to be. For that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.